Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center L3C. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan Loveridge, a legal assistant at SATC and one of the hosts of the podcast, and I'm here with Tom Domerick, president of the National Marine and Manufacturers Association. Tom, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Nathan. Uh, I'm sure boating is a favorite pastime of many of our listeners, and so they're probably really interested in your work with the NMMA. But before we talk about that, I'd like to kind of take a step back and talk about your background and your experience coming into being its president. So I saw that you went to DePaul. Are you a Chicago native then? So I actually grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois. Oh, okay. And uh, came to Chicago in 1970 uh, to pursue a Bachelor of Arts in Economics uh, at DePaul. So I've been in Chicago for 49 years. So for those uh, who aren't familiar with that area, I know uh, I'm a Midwestern, Central Illinois guy, so I know East St. Louis area pretty well. but for those who aren't familiar, what was it like to grow up in Southern Illinois or in that uh, St. Louis metro area? So East St. Louis was a small town. I mean, it was 70,000 people. It was across the river from St. Louis. Uh, it was always a big treat to go to the big city, to go to St. <laughs> Louis uh, on the weekend with uh, my mother or father. But, you know, out right, out, right outside of East St. Louis, it was very agricultural oriented. And so... A lot of country roads. Uh, growing up as a teenager, uh, you know, we'd go to a lot of the other small towns in southern Illinois. So to, I really feel like I had a, a small town upbringing. Okay. And having a small town upbringing, you're usually very close to not just your family, but other people in that town. Um, do you kind of feel like you were kind of raised by the town or by the area? Did that affect you a lot in who you eventually became to be? Well, you know, I, I still to this day have a lot of good friends from my early years growing up. I had six siblings, so oh. <laughs> uh, we, we had a large family. You had a small town in your house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Great. Uh, so when you came to Chicago, do you remember what that initial experience was like? Because obviously 70,000 to me isn't that small. Um, I grew up in a town of 1,200, so yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's still a little big, and you had St. Louis there, but Chicago is kind of its own monster. It's not just the people, but sort of the neighborhoods and the vibe of the community. So it's interesting. I mean, uh, growing up in southern Illinois, uh, you know, my father owned a dry cleaners. My mother taught special education in a Catholic grade school, and I was a first-generation college student. Some of my siblings went to college, but my parents really didn't. And uh, so it it never occurred to me that I could go to college somewhere that was more than a five-hour drive from home. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of applied within that radius, and I I was fortunate to get into DePaul. I had a sister who was 10 years older living in Arlington Heights at the time, so I wasn't uh, completely cutting the cord and, and leaving for the big city. But Coming to Chicago for me was very exciting. Uh, you know, 18 years old, living in a dormitory, kind of on my own in, in the big city. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, I got to do a lot of exploring of the city. Uh, I lived in Lincoln Park there, uh, where DePaul's located, 
for probably about eight years, uh, the four years as an undergraduate and four years beyond that. And uh, it, it was very exciting. I mean, I love the city uh, and I love Chicago. Uh, in my work, I, I've traveled all over the world. I think I was counting the other day, uh, you know, I've probably been to 40 different countries and I've been to every continent except Antarctica. Wow. And people ask me, Tom, what's your favorite city in the world? And I tell everybody, Chicago. Yeah. It's a great city. It is a great city. <laughs> so did you know pretty much right away when you came here for school that you wanted to stay in the area and, and do your work here? I guess I never really thought about it, um, but you know, I grew to love Chicago. Uh, I, I, work, I got my first job here, first couple jobs here in Chicago after college, and then I, uh, I married uh, my wife who was a native of Chicago. And after that, there was just never any question we were going to stay in Chicago. I saw you have an accounting and economics kind of background. Is that finance is kind of the area that you studied and worked in when you were starting your career? So actually, uh, when I came out, when I graduated, I, my first job was at DePaul University as the assistant director of housing. I basically ran the housing department because the director of housing was also the director of the student union and director of athletics. Oh, wow. So he didn't really have much time for housing. Uh, after a couple of years of that, I, I decided to get my MBA. I uh, changed jobs still at DePaul, worked for the dean at the Graduate School of Business while I was getting my, uh, my MBA with a concentration in finance. And as I finished that up, uh, what I thought I really wanted to do was be a, a portfolio manager at the Northern Trust or one of the big banks. But uh, the dean had a friend who was the the uh, executive vice president of the Illinois Bankers Association. He was looking for a director of education. So the dean suggested I talk to him, and I did. And long story short, he hired me as director of education. I spent 13 years with the Illinois Bankers Association, and uh, I did go back and get my master of science in accounting. My career has been in association management. Okay. So, I mean, the finance, the accounting, I mean, everything I've ever learned I've used. Uh, but I, I didn't actually work in the finance area. Yeah. Um, what about the early job kind of taught you what it's like to be an adult and what it's like to go to work and to sort of learn and grow and use what you learned at DePaul in a real setting? What was it that you were learning in those early stages that kind of sticks with you? So that first job as assistant director of housing uh, again, because the director was busy with other jobs, uh, it was a wonderful experience where I got a tremendous amount of responsibility, a tremendous mm -hmm. amount of autonomy very early and was managing people and managing operations and managing budgets uh, from day one. And so that, that, that was a great experience, and I think I learned a lot uh, about working with people and dealing with people. And being in charge of a dormitory, I had, uh, or a couple of dormitories, you know, I had 500 students who I was responsible for. And uh, I think, uh, you know, the ones I got to know the best were the ones that were always in trouble <laughs> because I would be interacting with them more than people who just, you know, did the right thing. Uh, but I but I love that. And... Uh, you know, even even those who were always in trouble, they were all they were good people. They were good kids, and uh, I think uh, to try not to, to judge people too quickly, I think that's served me well. 
Yeah. One of the things that I'm hearing that I also read in your profile, um, in your bio, just learning about you um, before this and preparing, it seemed like maybe your job as the assistant housing director kind of helped you because in your current role, you kind of wear a lot of different hats and you do a lot of different things um, with the NMMA. And so it seems like in that role, you were also doing a lot of different things. I mean, caring for college students means that you're doing (laughs) everything from like being a best friend to a disciplinarian to, you know, everything in between. And so did that help you sort of learn how to wear a lot of hats and, and multitask and things like that? Yeah, and I think it also taught me, you know, if you see something that needs to be done, do it. Yeah. Don't don't wait for somebody to tell you what to do. Don't wait to be asked to do something. If if you see there's something that needs to be done, do it. In fact, you know, during my 13 years with the Illinois Bankers Association, we we had this uh, we had these 10 groups around the state, and nobody on the staff wanted to take responsibility for these 10 groups. So there was a secretary on the staff who said, you know, what, I'll do it. And so everybody said, okay, you can have it. Well, she turned that into a career Mm. and went from being the secretary to a vice president because she saw that there was something not being done that needed to be done and took the initiative to do it. Yeah, great. It's great for us to even think about in, you know, wherever we're at, whatever career you have, it's like if you see something, you know, there's always opportunity. Yeah, you see something needs to be done and nobody's doing it, do it. Yeah. what was work like for you at the Illinois Bankers Association? What was your day-to-day like there? Was it kind of different all the time? Well, again, I started as director of education. And so, I, again, I, I very rapidly was given responsibility for a budget, for staff, and for organizing these educational programs. We would run two-week schools at Southern Illinois University or one-week schools in uh, Charleston or Peoria. Mm. Uh, where we would bring a group of bankers together in a very intensive environment to teach them agricultural lending or consumer lending or some other topic. Um, And so, again, I was, uh, you know, interacting with a lot of people, responsible for a lot of people, coordinating a lot of things, coordinating the faculty, coordinating logistics, responsible for the finances, meeting with the boards of trustees who were overseeing the program and making the direct... the decisions about the direction of the program and the curriculum and that sort of thing. So there was always a lot of variety. And during my 13 years from there, you know, I went from director of education. When I left there, I was senior vice president. I was the number two person. Uh, so I, over the years, I took on more and more and more responsibility till I, basically I had everybody reporting to me except our government relations team. Yeah, and so for some people, that added kind of responsibility can seem really daunting or seem really stressful. Um, what would you say about kind of accepting that and thriving in that? How, how were you able to do that? And then for people who are maybe out there kind of trying to figure out how to do the same thing or how to kind of take on new tasks or create those new opportunities for themselves, what would you say to them about your experience with that? So I, I would tell you that uh, throughout my career, uh, I was often called upon to do things I never did before. Mm-hmm. And rather than think about the enormity of what it was I was being asked to undertake, I took one step at a time. Okay. And, you know, what is the first thing I need to do? I know I got to get there, but what is the first thing I got to do? 
And so I took the first step, and then I took the second step, and then I took the third step. And before you know it, you've you've eaten the elephant, mm -hmm. and uh, you've gotten to where you needed to get and accomplished what you needed to accomplish. But you did it one step at a time. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I can't remember the name of the book, but I read a book about the you know, the training the Navy SEALs receive. And they get to the last part of the training where most of the people drop out. And before they start that last part of the training, which, I, you know, it's like a couple of very intense weeks, the, the commander tells them, do not think about what you're going to have to go through the next two weeks. Mm -hmm. Think about what you have to do in the next 10 seconds. And just take it in little bites and you'll get through it. And I think what happens to some people is that rather than digesting it bite by bite, step by step, they get overwhelmed by the enormity of it when, you know, nobody can ever do the whole thing at one time. We all have to do it one step or one bite at a time. Good advice. It's a great thought. Um, and I want to kind of talk about your life outside of banking at that time or, or putting on these educational conferences. What was that work-life balance for you as you're kind of growing in your career and, and getting promoted? What was it like for you at home and then with your friends? I mean, I think that's one of the hardest things to kind of figure out for a lot of young people and a lot of people who are early in their career is how do I be successful and grow in my career and yet, you know, be there for my family and friends. And sometimes that balance can be tough to work out. At, during that 13 years with the Illinois Bankers Association, we had our four children, three boys and a girl. I coached Little League for all of them, and a lot of Little League, including some traveling all-star teams for baseball. I went back and got my Master of Science in Accounting, which my wife strongly encouraged me to do. I found time, but I will tell you that that was during that was pre-email. Mm-hmm. That was pre-iPhone. That was pre-texting. And I think today it's harder hmm. because we're connected all the time. It's, yeah. it's harder and harder to disconnect. But, I, you know, there, there are ways to disconnect. And, I, I, you know, if we all have to do some work at home, we just need to set aside, all right, this is the time I'm going to, focus on catching up from my email from the day, but during this other time is when I'm going to spend the time with my family. Because yeah. kids go to bed early. There's always time later in the evening. But you know, it, it's harder for people today, clearly harder for people today than it was for me, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because I've felt that same sort of, the more that we are connected, the less that we are connected at the yeah. same time because... You know, I can see what my friends all over the world are doing, but because I'm looking at what they're doing, am I paying attention to what's happening right around me right. or with the right. people who are, you know, more immediate in my life? Right. And it's it's a tough balance because, you know, it's it's interesting that we can be so connected to people all over the world, but, you know, are we losing sight of what's right in front of us and, and who's right in front of us. Well, it, it is interesting. And, I, you know, my four kids are all now married, and I have nine grandchildren, and the oldest is seven. So I've got a seven of five and a three and then a bunch of two-year-olds and under. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I just watch my kids and how much time they spend on the phone when they're with their kids. 
And, you know, their kids at times will say to them, you know, put away the phone. Mm-hmm. Focus on me. This is my time. So, you know, my, my advice to people is, uh, and it's hard. I get it that it's hard. But you need to put the phone away sometimes and do just focus on the people around you and be present in the moment. Um, during this time, voting. <laughs> Is it something that you're interested in? Was it something that you were doing, something you're involved with, or something that just came out of nowhere for you? My best friend has a has a lake house up in northern Wisconsin, and we would go up there every year, and he has a ski boat on the lake. And, uh, you know, he taught me how to ski, taught all my kids how to ski, water ski. So we would go up there and spend a lot of time on a boat for one week every year, and we loved it. But outside of that, you know, I was not a boater. Uh, before I joined the National Marine Manufacturers Association. So I've, I've been blessed that, uh, you know, the association has a boat available to us. And, and over the years, I've had lots of opportunities to boat. And I've, you know, I've discovered the, the joy and the benefits of being out on the water. Mm-hmm. So share some of those with us. Most of us know the joy. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who enjoy, you know, getting, getting out, on the out on the water and... Even here in the city with the boat tours and the architecture tours, it's, it's always a great time. Um, I hear people just rave about these tours, and, and I've enjoyed them. But what are some of the benefits that may be surprising to people that we, we may not think about, about just being able to get out on the water, either recreationally and, and doing the tubing thing, or just even doing a tour or just maybe the water taxi? So the, the main reasons that people go boating are fishing, water sports, socializing with family and friends, or just enjoying the outdoors. For me, when I'm out on the boat, I get a whole different perspective. And I get a different perspective in two ways. One, when you're out on Lake Michigan looking back at the city, you see the city in in a way that people who can't get out on the water don't see the city. And it's beautiful and it's different. And it's exciting. But the other thing it does is that it clears my mind to be out on the water. It relaxes me, clears my mind, and I get a new perspective on things I'm dealing with. And to me, that's one of the great benefits. Yeah. So as we're talking about unplugging, maybe that's a good way to practice unplugging. It's just get out on a boat and it's a great not one. worry about your phone for a bit. <laughs> It's a great way to unplug is to get out on a boat. And the great thing about boating is that no matter how, how old your kids get, they'll, they're always asking to go boating with you. Yeah. So while they might not want to sit and have a conversation with you at the kitchen table, they'll happily go out on a boat with you, and then you've got them captive for two or three or four <laughs> hours where they got nobody else to talk to but you. I spent nine years at a, at a group called IPC, which was a, a trade association in the electronics industry. It was manufacturers of printed circuit boards and companies that did electronics assembly. And uh, what was that time just in general for you like? Um, what, what did you learn there? What, what was beneficial for you in that time? Went there as the president, spent nine years there as the president. Uh, it was a larger organization and now the buck stopped here. And mm-hmm. that was my first job as president. Mm-hmm. And of course that was a whole new set of learnings. Uh, learn things like when I said something, uh, people sometimes listen more than I intended them to. Uh, you know, I might have 
just an idea that I was casually thinking about, and I'd mention it, and next thing I know, people were off doing it, thinking that was a direction I had given them. <laughs> so uh, I really had to learn to be careful about uh, how I communicated and the words I chose to communicate. So I guess my biggest learning in those nine years was that uh, the words you use to communicate are really, really important, and that you should not take communication lightly. Communication needs to be thoughtful. Hmm. That's really interesting. Never thought about that, but that's, that's really interesting. Um, so what brought you then to the NMMA following that? Well, you know, I, after uh, it was nine going on 10 years at IPC, I, I kind of had this philosophy that, uh, kind of like university presidents, that you probably shouldn't stick around an association for more than 10 years. Uh, that at, at that point, it was probably time to bring in somebody new, new ideas, new background, could bring new life, take the organization in new directions. So I, you know, I started interviewing for jobs, not actively, but now and then. And anyway, uh, uh, there was a, a headhunter who, uh, for a job I applied in Washington, D.C. They decided that they didn't want to have to go to the expense of moving somebody to D.C., so he said, you know, they're, they're going to move on. And I said, that's fine. And he said, well, but I got another job in Chicago I'm working on, and it's the National Marine Manufacturers Association. So I interviewed there, and I was very fortunate to get the job. They had been without a president for two years, mm. and so that which, which brought a whole new set of challenges. But it, it has been, I've been there 20 years, and I know I said I thought you ought to leave after 10, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about that in a minute, but... I learned so much, and I've had the opportunity to work with so many talented people that it, it's been a very rewarding uh, time. Yeah, so tell me at its core what, what the NMMA does. Uh, what, what is it about? Okay, so the NMMA members are primarily manufacturers of recreational boats, marine engines, and boating accessories. Our primary objectives are to advocate on behalf of the recreational boating industry and the recreational boating public and to expand the market for recreational boating. So we've got, uh, we've got a lobbying staff in Washington, D.C. We're active in lobbying the Congress and the administ administration as well as lobbying at the state level to ensure that Americans have access to the water, to ensure that Americans have access to fishing, uh, and can enjoy their boat. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, we are the largest producer of boat shows in the world. Uh, we produce the Chicago Boat Show. We also produce the Miami Boat Show, the New York Boat Show. We produce 18 consumer boat shows mm -hmm. and one trade show. Uh, we certify boats. So using American Boat and Yacht Council standards for uh, construction of boats and ensuring the boats are meeting the, the, the safety standards, we certify the boats to those standards to, to make sure that we're delivering a safe and quality product to the consumer. We do a lot of market research for the industry, uh, research on consumer behavior. Uh, we operate the industry's Discover Boating campaign. So about 12 years ago, the industry uh, decided that we needed to do a better job of promoting the boating lifestyle to draw more people into boating. And so we launched Discover Boating. And uh, we have a website called discoverboating.com, which doesn't sell boats. It sells boating. 
Okay. So we sell the lifestyle. But what we try to do is, for people who are new to boating, we try to answer all their questions, and we try to help them find the boat that will be right for them, depending on you know where they want to boat, what type of body of water, how many people, what kind of things do they want to do, try to get them into the right boat. So that that's actually now about a $9 million a year campaign. It's largely done uh, with digital advertising and social media and a lot of video. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it's been very successful in increasing awareness and interest in the boating lifestyle. So yeah. I, th- those, are the, those are the main things. I don't think I'm forgetting anything. Well, I, it's funny because I, I kind of made a list as I was learning about uh, the association of what you do um, outside of, obviously, the boat shows. And I, I listed safety, use of waterways, advocacy and market expansion, which I think were all things that you talked about. So I think if you go online and you kind of look around, you really do get a picture of what what it does and and why it exists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, as I mentioned, I've worked in three industries, boating, electronics, and and, uh, banking. And we interface with about... 14 different agencies of the federal government on issues related to recreational boating. You know, the Army Corps of Engineers is the largest manager of recreational bodies of water in the country. Uh, The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, the Department of Commerce, the the U.S. Trade Representative. You know, we're very engaged right now in this whole trade war uh, because the tariffs on steel and aluminum uh, have resulted in retaliatory tariffs from the Europe. So while the boating industry is both a uniquely American-made manufacturing industry, it was also a net exporting industry. But our exports to Europe have been down significantly due to this 25% tariff on American-made boats. So we're engaged in trade issues. Uh, just it's amazing breadth of issues that we get involved in. Something else that I wanted you to talk about that I saw was uh, how you talked about uh, in your your bio that I received boat shows being a living entity and so like a, a living thing. And was hoping you could expand on what you mean by that and just um, just how that kind of affects what you do and what your team does there. So we have about 100 staff total, and there are probably 45 of them that work every day, year-round, to produce these 18 consumer boat shows. And there's probably another 20 or 25 that part of their responsibilities is related to boat shows, whether it's accounting for them, doing PR for them, doing uh, design, websites, whatever. But uh, they are... They're, they're complex events, and they're, and they're selling events. So unlike a car show where you go and look at cars and then later on go to a dealer if you want to buy it, mm-hmm. at a boat show you have the opportunity to look at all the boats available in the marketplace, in your marketplace, um, compare them on features and amenities and how they best meet your needs, and, and you can buy the boat right there at the show and usually probably get your best deal at the boat show. You know, for example, we produce the Miami International Boat Show. Miami International Boat Show has 700 companies exhibiting. There are 2,000 boats on display. There are boating accessories. 
there's a million square feet of uh, exhibits upland and and 700 boats in the water. Uh, it attracts 100,000 people a year. People look forward to going to it. It employs directly and indirectly about 6,000 people. It generates $854 million of economic activity for South Florida. Mm-hmm. Now, just to put that in perspective, that's about two and a half times the economic impact of a Super Bowl. Wow. And we are there in South Florida every year. Yeah. Now, you know, in Chicago and New York and the other cities that we're in, the show also provides an economic impact and economic stimulus to the city, not on the same scale as Miami. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you've got all the companies that are exhibiting, all the salespeople that are working the show, all the tradesmen that are working the show at the convention centers, all the marketing people that are working on the show, employs a lot of people. These shows employ a lot of people beyond the people that just work for NMMA. In fact, we'll take on five or 600 temporary employees during boat show season who are working on location in these shows yeah. with the move in and the move out, which is, which is a big logistical challenge. Yeah. So tell me about those challenges a little bit, because I'm sure there are a good number of challenges in that. But what would you say are some of the biggest challenges that you've had to hurdle while putting on these shows? Probably the biggest challenge uh, in my 20 years with NMMA was uh, having to move the Miami Boat Show. Mm-hmm. In 2015, uh, the Miami Beach Convention Center, which had been home to the Miami Boat Show for probably 49 years at that point, um, decided they were going to completely renovate the convention center. And the parking lot behind the convention center, which we also used for exhibits, was going to be converted into a hotel. And so we had a million square foot show that we were no longer going to be able to hold at the Miami Beach Convention Center. We couldn't move it to Orlando. It wouldn't be the Miami Boat Show anymore. <laughs> so we had to try to find a venue in Miami that, where we could put up a million square foot boat show that provided the economic impact that I talked to you about, that employed so many people that I talked to you about, and that was so important to all of these marine businesses, not only in Florida, but around the country. We found that with the help of Mayor Regalado, who was the mayor of Miami at the time, suggested a a venue on Virginia Key called uh, the Miami Marine Stadium. It had been damaged during Hurricane Andrew in the the 70s, I think, and, and had not been in use for over 20 years, 25 years. But there was 15 acres of parking lot upland, and the stadium, which was just like bleachers facing the water, faced a basin of water the size of the Washington Mall. Wow. And so we, we worked on an agreement with the city of Miami where they invested $20 million to create the infrastructure, basically all underground, that we needed to produce a show there. And so the show is in February. The city's construction on the site didn't start till May, so that's eight months before the show. The city did a marvelous job. They got it done just in time, but they got it done. I've never seen a city uh, who was able to work so quickly and so efficiently to complete a pretty sizable construction project. But at the same time, we had to design 600,000 square feet of clear span tents and find a partner to do that. We had to build a 
at the first year anyway, it was about a 600-slip marina in this basin, which we then had to remove after the show. And that marina was the largest temporary marina ever built in the world and was the second largest marina in the state of Florida for the few weeks it existed, and we had to pull it out. And so we, have to, we still have to build, essentially, a convention center and a marina every year to do this show. Uh, that, that takes an incredible amount of uh, local labor, takes an incredible amount of planning and coordination. And because it was brand new, there were a lot of things that we just couldn't know and couldn't anticipate. So this uh, 2020 is our fourth year, I believe, at uh, the new location in Miami. We continue to learn things, but mm -hmm. we've made significant improvements every year. It is a, a destination people love to go to. It's probably the best destination in the world for a boat show, but it's, it's a lot of work, and we got a team that does nothing year-round but work on the Miami Boat Show. Wow, that's amazing. Now, I would just add, we had to move this show. The logistic challenge was part of it, but a neighboring community didn't want the boat show to be on Virginia Key. So they filed lawsuits against us in the city to try to stop the show. They hired a PR firm to uh, turn public opinion against the show. So while logistically we're trying to move this massive show, we also had to fight these lawsuits. We had to fight a PR campaign. And frankly, we didn't know if we were going to be able to hold the show until about six weeks before the show opened. Wow. So it was, it was a huge gamble uh, on the part of the association. Um, it was an extremely stressful time for our staff. Um, but we, we made it through. It's been a great success. People are thrilled with it. And that probably was the biggest challenge of my entire life. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty big one. <laughs> Sounds like it. Um, when is the Chicago Boat Show? Because I've actually never been, and it sounds really interesting. Well, so. the Chicago Boat Show is in uh, January. Okay. I'd be happy to also get you some tickets, Nathan, so you can go to the show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Thanks. But it, it, the Chicago Boat Show is a big show. It's the Chicago Boat RV and uh, Sail Show. So we've got sailboats, RVs, and uh, powerboats on display. And it is, it is one of the biggest shows in the country. Great. At yeah. McCormick Place. Of course, the main corner. Yeah, yeah, definitely look forward to that. Boat show happens January eighth through the twelfth, and that's twenty twenty, of course. Um, so definitely looking forward to that. Um, Tom, I want to circle back to something that you promised you'd share with us earlier, and that is um, you've been the president now for twenty years. You're you're a little past your ten year mark of. Uh, Moving on, so share with us why you, you decided to stay and, and how that's kind of worked out for both parties. So this is, uh, this is not well known, but um, as I was approaching that 10-year mark, uh, a job with another association, which was a job that I, my whole career, I said, if this job ever comes open, this, this is the job I want. And uh, I applied for that job, and it was right after we had launched the Discover Boating Campaign. And it was just as we were entering into the Great Recession. And while I was interviewing, the, the search committee said to me, don't you want to stay and see how the Discover Boating Program turns out? And that got me thinking about it. 
the other thing was that, that yeah, I think I, I did want to stay and see how it turned out. The other thing was we were going into the Great Recession, and during the Great Recession, uh, not unlike a lot of other businesses, we, we had to reduce our staff from 149 to 82. We, our budget, when I started at NMMA, our budget was $32 million. We grew to $64 million. In two years during the Great Recession, it was back to $32 million. Now, 10 years later, we're back at $64 million. But So what happened at that 10-year mark was this convergence of events that almost made it like a whole new job again, mm -hmm. a, a whole rebuild the association again. could not leave the industry and the staff at a, at a point where things were in such distress. And I'm glad I didn't because it, it's been a great ride. Um, and there are, there are executives who stay beyond 10 years and who are, are able to, to make the job new and fresh every year. And I think I've been able to do that. And uh, that's why I stayed. What have you learned from the other people that you're working with or, or the other people in the association? What are some of the things that, that they've been able to teach you during your time there? So I've, I've learned so much. Um, you know, Probably one of the most important lessons I've learned is to ask for help. Uh, I went through most of my career believing that I had to do everything, that uh, I couldn't ask for help. To ask for help would be, uh, be showing some weakness. But going through that Miami Boat Show experience, uh, I, I needed help. And funny thing happened. When I asked for help, Everybody helped. Yeah. It was amazing. And so I learned that, hey, it's okay to ask for help. I learned that people don't always know when you need help, so you have to ask. And when you ask for help, people will help you. People want to help you. Uh, the staff of NMMA, people go above and beyond all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but they've also taught me... Uh, the need to appreciate more this work-life balance. I mean, I'm a bit of a workaholic, and they've taught me the need to provide people flexibility in where they work and when they work, uh, you know, so that they, they can better manage their priorities. Uh, you know, they've taught me a lot about communication uh, we, we have a fantastic communication team. Here's the thing. I, you know, I, I recently uh, finished up my Doctorate of Business Administration at DePaul. Graduated in June. And I was talking to one of our staff members the other night. And they, they said, you know, I've always preached lifelong learning. Just You need to be continuously learning. And, and you have to take responsibility for that yourself. Your employer hopefully will help you. And, but, but sometimes you need to let your employer know what it is you feel you need. And you got to be your own advocate. So you got to take responsibility for your own continuous learning. Uh, but he, he was talking to me about, you know, the commitment we have to continuous learning at NMMA. And he said, my father was the same way. And my father told me he never learned anything that he didn't use. 
And I thought, you know, that's so true, and I feel the same way. Mm -hmm. I never learned anything that I didn't use. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, you've given us so many great thoughts, and I really appreciate that. Um, we generally kind of wrap up with asking for advice or, or thoughts for people, especially maybe younger people who are starting their careers or trying to figure out, you know, what they want to do or how they're going to do that work-life balance like we talked about. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for people who are out there who are kind of starting off and trying to figure out what this corporate or career life is going to look like for them? Well, the first job is likely not the job you're going to spend the rest of your life in. Take, do it, learn what you can from it. You're eventually going to move on to another job. But along the way, take initiative. That is probably the number one recommendation is take initiative. Don't, do not wait for people to ask you to do something or tell you to do something. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Uh, mistakes are learning opportunities. And as long as we learn from our mistakes, uh, you know, mistakes are okay. Uh, and if you do make a mistake, own up to it. Yeah. And, you know, people respect that. Yeah. Finally, I'd say build your network and never burn any bridges. As you're going through your career from the very early stages, everybody you meet is somebody who may be able to help you somewhere down the road. So build that network, keep in touch with that network, and never burn a bridge when you move from one job to another. I just had lunch the other day with a, with a former member of NMMA. Uh, he's worked in several companies. Uh, he's outside the marine industry now. Uh, and he, he, his main focus was strategy. And the company he's working for, he, he was wearing a lot of hats, strategy, marketing, new business development. But he got a call out of the blue from uh, president of a, a company in the power tools industry which is an industry he had worked in earlier in his career. And he said, I'm getting ready to retire, and I'd like you to come and talk to me about becoming president of this company. And he said, you know, Tom, I'm glad I never burned any bridges because he was given that opportunity, A, because he kept in touch with this network and because he never burned a bridge. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I read uh, was when you were inducted into the NMMA's Hall of Fame. So congratulations on that. Thank and you. receiving your doctorate. Uh, it's big stuff, so definitely congrats. Um, but when they asked uh, a gentleman to give their thoughts on you, um, he actually quoted a Swedish proverb that says, rough waters are the truer test of leadership. In calm waters, everyone has a good captain. And I think that really seems to show that, you know, regardless of the water, you know, having a steady captain is really important. And I think it definitely sounds like you've been that for the NMMA. And, um, and I, I'm inspired by that, and I hope our listeners are as well. So thank you for your work. Um, thank you for what you've done and for your thoughts here today. Um, if you have any closing thoughts, we'd love to hear those. Otherwise, um, 
No, I just thank you for the opportunity to visit with you today, Nathan. I've uh, I've enjoyed this, and uh, I hope you and the listeners find some little thread of value. Yeah, absolutely. And get out there and go boating. And get out there and go boating. And if you're not if you're not boating, go visit discoverboating.com. I was just going to say you mentioned discoverboating.com. Um, also, the Chicago trade, the Chicago Boat Show, uh, early in the year, and of course, you can always visit the NMMA online and check out what they have. Tom, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been great. Uh, we're certainly happy that you came in. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.